Ever wonder the true power of sports? Well, you come to the right place. Welcome to the Sports for Social Impact podcast. I'm David Thibodeau, and I believe that by exploring the intersection between sport and society, we can better leverage the sport industry for maximum impact. We explore what sports true power is to understand the impacts on and the impacts of sports on society. Join me as we learn how sports can influence important policy areas such as the environment, transportation, education, and so much more. Now I have some very exciting news to share about the Sports for Social Impact podcast. We have been shortlisted for a 2023 Sport Podcast Award in the Best of Quality and Social Impact podcast. Now, I really love doing this podcast, and I just wanted to send a a big thank you to everybody who's been listening and following along over the last two and a half years. It would mean so much to me if you went and voted for the podcast. The link is in the show notes, and you can also find it on our Twitter and our Instagram pages. Voting is open until April 6th, which is the International Day of Sport for Development and Peace. So I think that's really incredible that that's the day that the voting ends. But um, yeah, thank you so much for the support, and please, please go vote. Welcome to another episode of the Sports for Social Impact podcast. In this episode, we continue the theme of, you know, the future of sport events that we started last summer with the president and CEO of the Canada Games Council, Kellyanne Paul. So in this episode, we have the chair of the 2030 Commonwealth Games bid uh, for Hamilton, Ontario, Lou Fraporti. Uh, It was a really great conversation. You know, we talk about the vision for the bid. You know, we talk about uh, how they're putting your purpose and social impact at the center of the bid and sort of building it around that. Uh, you know, there, um, we talk about the community involvement and community engagement and how that, and how, um, you know, that's really necessary for sport events now, you know, mega sport events now. Um, and, and then it goes from there, you know, and then the conversation goes on from there and it talks about, you know, reimagining how we can measure these things. How can we measure, all these other impacts that you know that fall outside of, of a a dollar value. So really great conversation with Lou. Um, I hope everybody you know enjoys this conversation and um, you know starts thinking about how we can yeah you know change the game a little bit, change change how we imagine sport events. But before we get to that, the news for the news segment for this episode, I wanted to highlight. <laughs> Paris's budget. So yeah, so the news came out for Paris's budget, um, and there's just some really interesting things in there that I wanted to highlight. So the first is that they're putting 20.2 million euros um, towards the Vélib bike sharing service. So Vélib is a, one of the biggest bike sharing and most used bike sharing systems in the world. Um, they're also putting a lot of money towards their Paris uh, Respire system, which is uh, you know, reducing air pollution from cars, uh, you know, to make Paris a a healthier city. Um, they're also putting a lot of money towards their soft traffic, uh, efforts. You know, they want to, they want to make Paris a 100% cycling city. Um, some interesting statistics. So in 2021, Paris had more than 1000 kilometers of cycling tracks, including more than 300 kilometers of tracks and 52 kilometers of temporary tracks created since or after the first lockdown of COVID-19. Um, so, you know, they're saying that these will be fully maintained. And I think that's, you know, these these cycling tracks that were built during uh, during the first lockdown, they're being cleverly called, Olymp- uh, sorry, uh, Corona Piste. 
So piste in French or in English is cycling track. That's how I would uh, translate it. So and it's actually really funny now that they're, you know, they're looking towards the, uh, the Paris 2024 Olympic Games. They're now calling all of the new cycling, faci- you know, cycling tracks that they're building Olympiste. So a play on the words for Olympic. Um, so I think that's really clever. And it's really awesome to see, you know, them using that as a way of uh, connecting people with cycling. They are doing a lot of work to make Paris a true 15-minute city for everybody in Paris. Um, the budget allocated to sport is going up by 16.7% from 2022. So for 2023, uh, the sport budget is 71.9 million, million euros for 2023, uh, which is up 10.3 million from 2022. They also are putting 23 million euros for the operation and maintenance of swimming pools. Uh, 4.9 million euros for, that are attended for the management of sport halls and gymnasiums. And there's also um, some money in there for the Olympic and Paralympic Games. Um, so, you know, the, the host society and some of the operations around that. Um, so a lot of really interesting work happening in Paris. And there's one thing that I really wanted to highlight. And I'm not sure if it's in the, you know, coming out of Paris or if it's, you know, um, the national budget, I'm not sure exactly who's responsible for it. But they're putting $1.4 billion towards making La Seine swimmable. So it, it because of all the pollution, nobody has been legally allowed to swim in the river since I think it was 1923. Um, so they're putting $1.4 billion towards making it swimmable again. And I think that would be absolutely incredible. Um, you know, I don't think there's a reason why any sort of waterway should be so polluted that humans can't swim in it. And think think about how you know much more livable, how much more incredible that city would be, how much more vibrant that city would be if you would be able to swim in the river, um, you know, every day. So some really interesting news that came out of Paris just this past Sunday on April second actually also took place. So there was a they held a plebiscite on or, or a referendum on whether or not e-scooters should be allowed to continue to operate in the city. Of Paris. So there's about 15,000 across the city, you know, with, with different companies. Um, there's, you know, Lime, Dot, Tier, um, I, you know, my, maybe a couple others. But um, so, you know, uh, you know, there's a few million people in Paris. I don't know exactly the number. Um, but out of everybody who you know, all of Paris, only 103,000 people voted on Sunday. So a very, very, very small amount of people. And out of that, 89% voted to ban e-scooters. Now, e-scooters have really grown in popularity, you know, around the world. I live in a city, Calgary here, where they're very super popular. Um, You know, they're always buzzing around. Now, there's some places that it causes more problem than others. You know, I'm going to say here in Calgary, they're always on sidewalks with pedestrians because there's no such thing as cycling infrastructure, right? So here in Calgary, when uh, there's when there's a, a cycling lane, e-scooters are supposed to be in the cycling lane. But on most of our streets, there's no such thing. So they go on the sidewalk. Now, so in other cities, um, I'm not sure exactly how it works. Um, 
you know, just my own thoughts on this. I think that, you know, for, for, you know, bike sharing, for e-scooters, you know, any kind of these micro transit, uh, um, sort of more active transports, they, it, they need to have a docking station because, you know, for the e-scooters here in Calgary, they're all over the place, right? They're just all over the place. Um, and we need proper infrastructure for them to make them effective. So I think this is really interesting that in Paris, you know, even though it was a really low number of people who voted, 89% voted to end it or to ban e-scooters. Anyways, so let me know what you think in the comments. Um, I've put a poll in the question. If you're listening on Spotify, you can go and vote and, you know, uh, tell us your thoughts on on e-scooters and bike sharing in your city. So let us know. And we will get back to the episode now. Welcome to my guest, Lou Fraporti, who is the chair of the games for Hamilton 2030. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome. Um, start off by telling us uh, about yourself. Well, I'm delighted to be here, David. Uh, first of all, I'm a husband and father of two wonderful young men. I've been a practicing lawyer for over three decades, having served as the managing partner of our law firm's Hamilton office for a number of years. And um, of course, uh, I'm here in part because I'm chairing the 2030 Commonwealth Games effort for the region. Awesome. So tell us about the vision for the Hamilton 2030 bid. So why Hamilton? Well, first of all, Hamilton was, as I think you know, the birthplace of the Commonwealth Games sporting movement in 1930. It was then called the British Empire Games and was conceived and brought to life by a visionary in this region, Bobby Robinson uh, in, um, in the summer of, of 1930. 2030 will be the centenary of the Commonwealth Games, uh, a games, uh, I would add, that had some very noteworthy innovations. It was the first time an athlete's village was ever created. It was the first time uh, athlete's podium was ever used. It was a carpenter from Hamilton that came up with the idea of an elevated athlete's podium. And community leaders, sought to explore the idea of returning the games in Hamilton for their centenary in 2030. Oh, awesome. I didn't know all that history and those kind of tidbits of the of the Hamilton. I didn't know that Hamilton was the first uh, games to be held, um, but I didn't know those kind of those, you know, the first athletes village and the podium. So it's really interesting that, that, you know, now that we kind of see so essential to, you know, ma major sporting events that they, that it started, that it started here in Canada and in, in Hamilton. So that's, that's actually kind of, that's, a, that's, that's really cool. Well, I think, you know, part, part of our interest was the fact that so few people knew about this really remarkable history in the region and in relation to the Games. And the Commonwealth Games, again, then called the British Empire Games, were the first multi-sport games, the only multi-sport games in history that have come out of Canada. And now include, obviously, over 70, 80 nation states are seen by well over a billion people every four years. Mm -hmm. And it's a legacy in history that we wanted to celebrate as community leaders. Mm -hmm. And I think that they were the, the first major sporting event that Canada hosted in 1930 or? Yes, that, that's, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing legacy. And yeah. So, so in your, in your vision, um, you proposed it as a community driven enterprise, um, you know, from its inception. So this, ho your hosting pro uh, proposal uh, reflects the aspiration to advance a grassroots, grassroots movement whose impacts and legacy have already become to uh, materialize. So 
you know, and you you say that you, that the impacts will be felt before, you know, long before the event and also long after the event. So rather than just viewing this as an event, um, as a one-time event, you're catalyzing it into you know a broader movement. So why why was this central to your bid? It's a great question, and it's worth noting that this wasn't our initial vision or approach pre-pandemic. The process started for us. Um, in 2017 or so, it seems like an eternity ago. But when we originally looked at advancing the 2030 Games bid effort, it was very much on a traditional games model, major government-funded infrastructure projects with a heavy dose of celebration on the centenary. And then a combination of the pandemic and lockdowns and our consultation with a really broad group of stakeholders, which I'll come back to in a second, from a broad cross-section of society about what we should do as a consequence of all that was unfolding, led us to go back to the drawing board and consider an entirely new approach. In doing that, we sought out organizations from around the world that were looking to advance innovations in multi-sport games, adopt new approaches. And over a course of well over a year or so, we, fashioned the approach that you were reading about and asking me about today. And that approach, I think in part, uh, is a necessary one. And we're seeing that increasingly in multi-sport games efforts around the world. And the disruption that's leading to the necessity of change, which of course you know, affects every part of society, the business community from which we come, uh, experiences disruption and forces change multi-sport movements are the same, that that disruption uh, was experiencing or advancing a lot of antagonism by government, taxpayers, and social justice advocates that large event-focused games of the usual type were not only really a waste of taxpayer money in many cases, but brought with them huge opportunity costs uh, in that community initiatives, much smaller ones, could uh, otherwise be priority, prioritized that weren't as a result of all of the money and attention that these major games suck out. So this led us to come to a concept around a movement rather than an event. And then we began to think about what that movement should be centered on, social impact in a variety of different ways. And we also uh, work to explore and then build a much broader group of stakeholders to become involved in and support the, the initiative, especially the private sector. Have you found the community and like, you know, government partners or, um, and, and even corporate partners, have you found them receptive to this idea of sort of reimagining what a sport event is? I know that, you know, uh, you know, we just saw in Calgary, I can't remember what year it was, 2018 or 2019, where they, where they held a referendum and the, and, uh, the city Calgarians, the citizens rejected, you know, the 2026 Olympic bid. And then just recently, the BC government rejected or, you know, stopped, you know, basically shut down the 2030 bid to host the Olympics in, 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 in British Columbia. Um, so do you find, have you, have you found people receptive to this sort of reimagination? You know, there's a lot of pushback to major sporting events. Yes. Well, not only receptive, but embracing it. And I think, you know, the, the, the events or the failures that you alluded to were very much on our mind. And as business people do, and we bring that business filter to the work that we take on, we undertook a bit of a gap analysis uh, as to why bids failed in the past, including those that you've referenced. And there were a couple of things that 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 were um, huge elements or symptoms of those failures. 
first, uh, to your point and to the point that you alluded to, these games are, are premised on such massive amounts of, of taxpayer funding that governments, which are by nature political, need to be able to rationalize that expenditure of taxpayer money to their constituents. And it's increasingly difficult to do that in circumstances in which there is pressing societal need. The value isn't there. That's a reality. And then secondly, we, we noted that games bid efforts tend to fail if the private sector isn't heavily involved and if government doesn't have comfort that the private sector is involved. Normally, the private sector gets involved in the event itself as sponsors or the private sector is there looking to procure government contracts on the delivery of games infrastructure or programming. But it's not usually the case that the private sector is leading the games effort from the beginning. Uh, you won't recall this, I think it was well before your time, uh, but the uh, the Olympic Games in, in Los Angeles decades ago, which were led by Peter Ubroff, who was a, an entrepreneur himself, were heavily premised on the idea of the private sector leading. And we felt that that, that 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 would create not only an alleviation of the demand on taxpayer money because the private sector could be called upon to participate by delivering infrastructure themselves that have community need, which is a way of solving for the white elephant concern that games often bring, uh, but that would embed private sector support among their employees uh, and customers and others that would help to sort of form the, the resources and catalysts for that movement. So in articulating that view and then working with the private sector and other broad stakeholder groups like post-secondary educational institutions, uh, the not-for-profit sector and others up front, they were all incredibly receptive to the extent that their views and vision and priorities can be embedded in the games. And I'll just, if you bear with me for a second, I'll explain something else that's quite critical to this movement. Bits have often failed because you have a small group of enthusiasts that are really passionate about the games, whether it's the Olympics or the Commonwealth Games or anything else. They create something that is their vision, and then they run around looking to get societal support, including government support for their vision. You'll appreciate that. It's very hard sometimes to get other people to accept something that you have created that they had no hand in creating, they're not authors of. When you turn that on its head and you begin with the premise that, look, we are going to leverage this event in ways that we're not entirely certain of at this point, but we're going to get the views and input of a broad cross-section of society, including the private sector, then obviously as a function of human nature, those groups and individuals, the business sector itself, becomes much more supportive. Why? Because they're co-leading it. They have a hand in its creation. They're authors of it themselves. And I think that's a huge key in driving movements of this kind forward. You need as broad a group of stakeholders as possible, centered on something they all have a hand in creating, and they can all get excited about. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree with that sentiment of you know needing, you know, obviously community buy-in and helping them build that vision up and build that um that message that you know the the you know, the legacy, I guess, like the legacy of the of the project that will benefit be benefiting them before and after the event. So yeah, absolutely. Um community buy-in is essential, I think, for you know, building kind of you know these mega sport events going forward. Um so and so you know central to your bid, you know, or your your bid bid proposal, your bid vision, um, you're talking a lot about, you know, the community well-being framework. So rather than rather than really outlining legacy objectives, you talk about 
you know, this this idea of community well-being. So talk, what is that about? Could you tell us a little bit more um, about how how you vision the game, you know, the, the, the games contributing to community well-being? Well, first of all, the concept of community well-being was uh, something, of course, um, that's hard to argue with. If you're if you're looking to advance sure. the movement, you're centering that movement on community well-being. You're, you're going to be hard pressed to find anybody that's opposed to that. You know, are you opposed to really bringing material improvements to our community today and not waiting ten years to do that um, as something that the games can bring? No one said no to that concept. Now, of course, delivering that is another matter, but it immediately created excitement and interest and buy-in, and um, you know, work to diffuse uh, opposition. Well, when you have an approach or a vision, as business leaders, you know that you have to get into strategy and tactics at some point because vision is great, but it doesn't really uh, give you exactly, uh, you know, a template for how to act and what to do. And so we needed to to drive that kind of framework and structure. Um, there's a lot of thought leadership globally in a variety of different disciplines, uh, you know, including um, real estate development, infrastructure. Um, in a variety of different government verticals around the concept of well-being in communities and all of its forms. And we were and have sought to borrow a lot of that thought leadership from those other disciplines as a way of organizing our work and approach uh, and then structuring our effort. And that, that's why we came up with um, and, and leaned into this concept of community well-being framework. And uh, as a consequence, that brought with it an enormous amount of existing knowledge and measurement metrics and thought leadership that allowed us to create structures around that. So, you know, we're delivering a games or at least sought to. There's a sporting event, obviously, but there's an enormous amount of other investment and activity that has as its objective, increasing the well-being of our communities. And then we leaned into these structures and these measures as a way of organizing and structuring that work. And, and that's why it was premised uh, in that fashion. I'll say uh, in, in conclusion, this is an entire area of, of, of effort internationally around this, and that is how do you measure those inputs and that activity? Mm -hmm. uh, in the end, you have to find ways, governments require, certainly in the private sector, it's not enough to invest money to do something. You have to have a way of measuring and, and gauging whether that investment, that energy has produced the result that you expected. Multi-sport games are no different. The governments around the world are looking at, at measurement metrics. The community well-being framework comes with an entire range of measurement metrics uh, that allow us to determine whether what we've done makes sense, whether we should change what we're doing, et cetera, et cetera. Now, there was different um, part of this community well-being framework. There was like different, um, I guess, areas of priority in your in your bid. So uh, environmental, um, there was uh, so, uh, social, I believe, and Cultural, cultural, yeah. Could you talk a bit, a bit about those and how, why they, why you believe them to be central to the bid? Like, right? Because you, you say this obviously this is a supporting event, right? So like that is the core of the whole thing. And then, you know, branching off of that, there's these pillars of, you know, community well-being. So how, why are those still central to the bid? Well, I think you know they're they're placeholders in a sense for the things that that are a function of community. Communities uh, are a place where the economy and business happens. Uh, communities are a place where people are educated. Communities are a place where culture exists. Communities are um, very much impacted by and drive impacts 
around the environment generally. So those broad uh, verticals, which in, in many cases, virtually all cases, we derived in part from looking at something called the United Nations 17 Sustainable Development Goals. And I'm not sure if your listeners are familiar with that, but that's a global effort around a variety of different verticals to produce positive change uh, over the next several years, concluding in 2030. And those 17 SDGs drove this community well-being framework. And it, it really is categories of activity that mark all of the things that happen in, in a community over time. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not exhaustive or prescriptive. Um, they were sort of placeholders and categories for how we might look at focus plan around and then measure our efforts. But whatever they might be, if you're going to be successful in moving a social movement forward, you have to be able to delineate or set out what the broad objectives are. And, and around events of this magnitude, clearly sport and culture and education and the environment become considerations in all of this. Uh, and then use that template in order to organize your effort and direct investment and um, that was really the purpose and intent behind how we approached it here. Okay, yeah. And so I know that, um, I don't know if you consider, you know, part of, I guess, like the legacy being felt beforehand, but I know you've also sort of launched a partnership with somebody, the the social impact games. So right. what what are those? <laughs> what, what are they? Well, we're very excited to, to um, pursue that partnership and that idea. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about the context. As we were exploring creating a movement, one of the things that that struck us was that multi-sport movements or events tend to be centered on the stars, the athletes. But if you're wanting to propel the movement around sport uh, and have it reach the broadest possible cross-section of people, in our view, you needed to democratize it. In other words, you needed to bring as many people into the movement as possible, uh, centered on this concept of competition. And it's a compelling idea, right? Because the sport, um, and however we experience sport from our earliest age, is about fundamental elements of human nature, our desire to compete against each other, to do it individually or in teams. And, you know, we've organized so much society around that, whether you're fans of an NHL team or participate yourself on a, on a sports team in your community, whether you're young or old. I'm getting older now. And so, you know, things like pickleball, whatever it might be, <laughs> centered on the idea of competition. Well, if you want a movement that um, can scale to as many people as possible, as efficiently and quickly as possible, and you want to center it on competition, and it can't just be about the sporting event where the athletes themselves are competing, uh, competing how would you go about doing that? Well, as with so many things in society, the idea of doing this digitally uh, came to us. And we came across a wonderful a group uh, within the community that were pursuing this as a business venture had nothing to do with the Commonwealth Games or multi-sport games of this magnitude, generally speaking. But they had developed a platform that looked to integrate um, corporate community and social responsibility programming and investments around the idea of gamification or competing to do good. So we worked with them over the course of many months to create a platform and an approach called the Social Impact Games, which was a way of, of marrying the idea of competition and social impact around a digital platform. And that, that, that enterprise, irrespective of whatever happens with the Commonwealth Games event uh, in Hamilton in 2030, 
this movement around a digital platform that seeks to democratize and bring in a broad cross-section of society aimed at doing good through competition continues to live and thrive. And I'll be happy to share with you separately. You can share with your listeners the link to that website and that platform, which we hope to continue forward with indefinitely and, and, and perhaps will gain resonance beyond you know, the province as a really compelling, innovative approach to bringing the concept of competition to doing good. Yeah, absolutely. I'll definitely add that uh, the link into the show notes so everybody listening can go find the link there. Um, but yeah, that's awesome. You know, you're you're already building a legacy, even if you know, just, you know, by chance the event doesn't actually happen. You've already built this legacy into the you know that that's coming out of the bid itself. So that's that's incredible. That um, you know, if we could, yeah, I you know, if I, I think it would be incredible if we could start thinking of bids, not just the Hamilton twenty thirty bid, but all major major sporting events that we could start looking forward with that foresight almost and 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 think about what impacts we can have along the way up until the event even if we you know don't have actually host the event because there there is a lot of money that put that you know that's put into you know the big committees um you know like a lot of taxpayer money doesn't get up front you know for for um for powering and 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 for powering all that work and uh just the bid itself so you know leveraging leveraging that during that time is also, you know, amazing. And, and I think, revol- you know, I want to say revolutionary, you know, using, using, uh, you know, sport, sport in these different ways. So I think that's really incredible. And um, so I, yeah, so I, I, I'm totally on board with everything you're saying. I, I just joined the board of directors for the Canada Games Council in, in the fall. And I know we're talking about, you know, all these different things about, you know, making sure that the games are, you know, make make sure that the games are relevant, make sure that they're reflecting the nation, make sure that they're, you know, they're, that we're putting purpose into each, each, you know, uh, event that we host every two years, um, because it is more than just one event, right? It's every, you know, it's everything between the events, right? Um, and, and it's so much more than just, just the sport itself. And there's so many um, things that come out of sport that are so good for the community. And, so I I am one hundred percent everything you know, in in agrees with everything you're saying about building that in, and it has it has I think it has to be part of sport going forward, right? They just, and there's no way that can just be a sporting event like it was in the past. I couldn't agree with you more, and and you know the pandemic and the lockdowns and its consequences uh, have reinforced um, how challenging life can be, especially for the most marginalized in in every community. And you can't help but but note that some sports, sport generally, of course, brings hope and physical activity and so many other benefits to even the poorest in every part of the world. You know, uh, soccer, football, uh, uh, as it's called, is a wonderful sport in that all it requires is a ball. Mm-hmm. Right. And so exploring opportunities in which you can advance movement set are sustainable. And that word sustainability is important because it means that things can carry forward in a positive way and in a fashion that doesn't put too undue a burden on any element of society. Creating movements that are sustainable and then produce really diverse outcomes are critical. It requires some design thinking in terms of how you advance them, um, but it's doable, particularly in the sporting context. And there, especially, you know, being thoughtful on how you use the energy behind such events and sport to be as diverse as possible in the groups and individuals that it, it encompasses and, and in those impacts 
is so important. You know, we worked very hard to consider the question of accessibility. A para-athletic competition generally and historically uh, has been undertaken separate from able-bodied competition. The Commonwealth Games are unique in that it combines them together. And that message of inclusivity is, is hugely important. Sports can connect all generations. You know, you can have grandparents competing with or playing with their grandchildren um, and creating connection between ages, people in different parts of the world, people of different abilities, people of different backgrounds is one of the unique powers of sport. So leaning into that and creating the structures around that holds it, I think, enormous pro uh, promise in creating positive change. And I think it was one thing everybody can agree on, especially today, the things that help to create positive change and bring people together are enormously important. Absolutely. I think, yeah, I, I, I yeah, you know, we're ever, it seems like we're ever heading towards a more polarized world and, you know, anything that brings people together, you know, like sport is absolutely essential and absolutely 100% needed. And so, yes, we, we definitely need to do that, that more and more. And, you know, just when you're talking there again, it just kept kind of, you know, brings me back to what you were saying earlier about, you know, how, how do we measure that, right? Like you can, like, you can measure a legacy in terms of infrastructure, right? Like you can see that, you know, you, you go to that pool and you swim in that pool, you go to that tennis court, you play on the tennis court. Um, but like, you know, as you were saying that, you know, that cultural, that social environmental sort of, that sort of legacy is much harder to conceptualize and much harder for people to really like tangibly grab onto and 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 think of when they're thinking of the games rather than you know the the um the infrastructure. So I think that I think that's a challenge for sporting events that um that we do need to figure out how to um I guess yeah be able to measure that I, I think it's a challenge that we that we still need to figure out. Uh, you know, on that, I'll, I'll share with you and your listeners is something that we struggled with a lot and, and, and feel that is really the most important question or issue. And that is that in this question of how and what we measure, we tend to measure things that are very tangible, like dollars or jobs, um, et cetera. But the reality is that things of this magnitude uh, have potentially their greatest impact in an intangible way. And that is in the, individual, in the individual human experience of people who are inspired as a consequence of, of a movement and who have um, experiences and memories that come from that that change the trajectory of their lives, right? If you have a movement that inspires thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, and in those many cases, particularly among the youngest people, you know, they have experiences that disrupt them heading in the wrong direction, that give them hope and optimism, that connect them to other people who can be their inspiration or their mentors or their coaches. How do you catalog and measure the sum total of that entire human experience? And when these things aren't done well or aren't done at all, how do you measure the loss of all of those thousands of people who are not now having the experiences that might change their lives in a powerful way. And I don't have the answer to those questions, but I think about that a lot because it is the greatest legacy, that human capital legacy, you know, and, and the telling of individual stories of human experience of inspiration, of struggle and overcoming struggle, all of those things be become hugely critical because statistics obviously 
they, they elude our ability to understand them, right? But individual human stories are what drive all of us. And I think this is an area that needs a lot more attention in moving games forward. Yeah, absolutely. I was just thinking, um, not to talk about the Canada Games again, but when I was there for PEI, PEI 2023, the Winter Games just happened in February. And you know, I was talking to some volunteers and they had, you know, this one volunteer had been at the 1991 Canada Games in PEI. They 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 were volunteers then. The 2009 Games, they volunteered. And now in 2023, they're volunteering again. And they had grandchildren who competed in the Canada Games. So, you know, it's just like, you know, th these kind of legacies, these kind of stories that, you know, live on in, you know, our hearts and our memories and our minds that, that how do you, right, as you're saying, you know, how do you measure that? And I, you you can't really measure that. There's, uh, there's not, and it's, I, we have to be able, I guess, like being able to share those stories better, I guess, is maybe part of the the solution, you know, being able to, um, you know, highlight these, these, you know, human capital, human cultural um, legacy aspects better, like sharing those stories more, um, maybe, you know, maybe part of the answer, but yeah, it, it's, it's really a difficult thing to tangibly measure in statistics and in, in you know, in a dollar vault, um, a dollar value, which, you know, as you, you know, every, as everyone says, we need, uh, which we need for, you know, our, we have to show our return on investment, right? For the taxpayers, for a lot of, for corporations and everything, we have to, we have to show on the return on investment, the ROI. Um, but yeah, so work to do, work to do in sport. Um, yeah. So, but Lou, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I think this was a really great and interesting conversation about, you know, sporting events and the Hamilton 2030 bid and, and your vision for the game. So that's, it was really incredible to learn more about it. And I'm looking forward to, um, you know, hopefully attending the 2030, <laughs> the 2030 games in Hamilton. Um, so do you have any last messages that you'd like to share with everybody listening? Well, I, I thank you for your effort. And I, I thank your listeners for their interest in this area, because I think it's an enormous, enormously powerful and wonderful area to lean into. But wherever the games are held in 2030, whether they're held in, in Hamilton or not, we encourage people to look at the Commonwealth Games sporting movement and the values uh, that it champions. Uh, and um, to, as we celebrate the 2030 games, wherever they are in 2030, to potentially lean in, participate. If, if uh, the social impact games platform is something of interest to, to check into that and pretend, potentially participate, that would be amazing. And um, we wish everyone the best. Awesome, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you once again to Lou for coming on the podcast to talk about the Hamilton 2030 Commonwealth Games bid and you know reimagining mega sport events for the future. Now, my one big key takeaway was just you know just the conversation that we were having around you know new metrics uh, to measure the social impact. You know what can we use to measure this? Um, it's a difficult it's a difficult conversation and a difficult question uh it's not just the sport industry that will be you know grappling with that question you know other sectors and other industries are also questioning how to measure you know the social side of things it's a lot harder to, to measure than the you know the economic returns uh you know, the, the dollar value and other key metrics that are you know that, that we can use numbers to show 
um, those are easy. Those are easy to come up with um, and easy to show growth or, you know, not or you know, the opposite of growth, degrowth. Um, so maybe maybe we don't need any metrics at all. I think that would be a really hard sell for a lot of people. Um, but you know, it, as we talked about, it's hard. It's hard to measure. I don't know what that would look like. But this conversation did remind me of a quote that someone once said to me: "Facts tell." stories sell so maybe it is just you know my comment about uh you know sharing more stories maybe that's how we can show um you know uh, maybe that can be a metric the more the more stories that come out the better the more stories that we can share the better anyways just some you know some food for thought um where we go from here i leave with you um you know everyone working in the sport industry, I think we can have, you know, this conversation and we can really talk about how we measure social impact through sport. Um, and I think it's a really great conversation to have. Um, but yeah, anyway, so that, that's it from this episode of the Sports and Social Impact podcast. Thank you so much for listening and we will chat with you next time.